Welcome to Beat the Dealer, Humans in the Environment. I am your host, Sandra Wong, and today we have our very first guest ever. He is someone that's personally special to me, and besides being one of the industry's smartest technologists that I know, he is my brother, and he is one of the reasons why I got into technology. His name is Benson Wong, and I'm excited for everyone to hear what he has to share. Ben has been a CTO to many companies, from real estate to gaming, was a writer for PC Magazine, my co-founder at Lucky Lady Games, and current development manager at Mozilla. Today we talk about technology past, present, and future. We delve into topics such as technology and the environment, culture, and everything that pretty much comes to mind. Ben, why don't we start off with a personal intro and let us know how long you've been a technologist been a technologist for a long time, I would say, uh, since the 90s, so quite a while, for so over 20 years. Um, my The things I'm usually interested in or quite interested in are you know, web technologies, where the web is going, uh, people working together, um, how technology connects us, uh, systems thinking, and uh, dealing with complexity, especially how technology has both increased and made complexity easier to understand. Awesome. I love that. What generation are we considered? Um, uh, somewhere between the, uh, the Xennials, you know, some between the X's and the millennials is like, we have this five year span that, that, you know, we grew up with the internet, but we were teenagers essentially when, when the web really came about, um, when it really started growing, um, like for mass adoption. Right. So the internet started yeah. somewhere in like the 1960s or something. But I guess before that, it was more on a commercial scale and they were too big for it to be like a personal computer. But I remember even, I don't even know what, what the date was, but didn't we start off with a 486 or something? Yeah. And even prior yeah. to that, though. There yeah, was when we started there. out, yeah, when we started out, it was the four, you know, the 486s, 3D, like the computers, the PCs were we're just becoming a big thing, and, and but but back then computers weren't connected to each other. Um, you know, you didn't have a high speed internet line. Everyone was using dial up. There was no cable modems, no ADSL, nothing. Um, or or at least they are out, not at least outside of like um, universities and stuff. Um, especially when we where we were growing up, we would have to mm-hmm. call into systems that weren't even part of the internet. I remember the first other computer my computer talked to was called a, a BBS, a bulletin board system. And it didn't even have graphics at the time. It just had colored text. Do you feel that that sort of has pushed innovation a little bit more um, into the mainstream? Uh, you know, if I, if I think back really far, it, I, the BBS wasn't really mainstream. Uh, it was more of, the, you know, back then, I, I really feel like it's more of the hipster culture. What really brought it mainstream was, I think, America Online, if anyone ever remembers that. You know, they used to include uh, these CDs um, with with Computer Shopper and, you know, the PC magazines. They used to come bundled with these CDs. Everyone had America Online. You know, they would install the software and they would have a modem and they would call into America Online. And it wasn't even quite... Uh, quite the internet yeah like not as we know it today uh it was they had sort of a a siloed experience it it was really when browsers like um the original uh uh, what was it uh netscape navigator um which evolved into you know firefox and, and these sort of browsers came about it's when it really opened up the web for people but but even then um if you you have to fast forward quite a while to get to like super mass global adoption is when we had mobile phones and cellular data networks. Mm-hmm. I might be getting a little ahead of ourselves. Mm-hmm. I remember yeah. those times when it was pre-internet there. I mean, looking back then when AOL sort of becoming like super mass market, do you, did people even have PCs? Like which one came first? Kind of like the chicken and the egg, you know, AOL had these CDs that they were sending out to get people online. But back then did even, personal computers was it in everybody's home at that time you know i I think so yeah i think in the the 90s most people uh you know if they can afford it had a pc in their home 
Mm-hmm. Because that's... because back then you used to go to a, a retail store and buy video games or software, and software came on floppy disks back then. You know, you would buy uh, Windows ninety five, and it would come on like you know a dozen or so floppy disks. Uh, that was even before the CD ROM era. And mm-hmm. people, yeah, so people had computers, and they and but they bought them for things like word processing, and but and video games. It, it was just it was really early. Um, Mm-hmm. So, so when when we were growing up, I, I think that's really where where it became like almost like an appliance in your house. Uh, you know, it's like most people had it, uh, particularly for for kids um, going to school. You know, even just starting uh, uh, elementary, uh, probably more around um, uh, starting around high school because that was like the '90s, right, for us. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look back there, if you put yourself back into who you were back then in the introduction of computers, did you have any type of vision of where technology would be today now being in 2020? Um, <laughs> you know, with, I guess we can't predict what Steve Jobs did with like smartphone or the iPhone and having everything be so connected everywhere. Did you have an inkling of that at all? Did you think like that? He- yeah, well, I mean, I did. I was a teenager, like you know, <laughs> uh, back then. But but you could definitely see it. Um, and it, you know what? What is when you experience like the the early internet? Like when, when you start out with just your, just you and your computer, and your computer is not connected to any other computer. It's just there, you know. And then the first time you sort of exit your house or or your network and access resources now today it's kind of like you pick up your smartphone and you have this huge world of information available to you but back then you had to go to the library or you bought uh Encarta or whatever it was called on CD-ROM remember the the encyclopedias used to come on CD-ROM and people were pretty surprised like you even play video on your computer and the videos were like postage stamp size like information back then uh was was what you had in front of you on the physical medium but but once you once that trend started that you can actually your computer can reach out and download a picture a sound file or even a movie eventually or just a video clip back then um that that emotion there changes changes things it it was pretty obvious that yeah this is the way things are going to go i remember um you know, having a lack of storage and we had to go and delete where the computer would slow down because we didn't have enough storage memory, uh, right? Yeah. So you have to keep upgrading those <laughs> things. But now that has tremendously changed with things being in the cloud. And I was one of those little bit late adopters of putting things in the cloud because I was like, okay, well, if you put it out there, how do I feel like no one else is going to steal it? Or so there's this like security issue, right? So um, right now... Do people? I don't even know if there's people that run out of disk space. I guess there must be. Um, but generally, what would you say the majority of the world is probably online and connected to the cloud now? Is that? No, no. The, I wouldn't say the the majority of the world is con- online connected to the cloud. There's billions of people who haven't ever used the internet. Like they live their lives today <laughs> without technology. Um, where we are in, you know, North America, like we're so connected and the cloud is, you know, it's like, we don't even think about it. It's just, we take it so for granted, but there's also people who are, who don't own PCs and their connection or their, yeah, their connection to the internet is over very slow cellular networks. Um, you know, like if they want to watch YouTube, they know about it. But they have to, you know, it takes them an hour to load a video because the data is so slow. Mm-hmm. Or, or they have to download these videos and they have to watch it the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, That's- like, or their devices. Like we have these cell phones that are almost like supercomputers. <laughs> you know, they're very, very fast. They're almost like PCs in our hands. But for the majority of the world, they have devices that are much, much, much slower, much smaller, much less memory. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when we design these modern day products for the rest of the world, so I I guess my question was, wasn't 
I was generalizing the world right now as being the modern world, the the westernized North American type of world. Um, but definitely when we go global to somewhere like the Philippines, or I think we talked about this before, expanding to these um, underdeveloped worlds, when we look at technology, because they have this blueprint that we've kind of done with technology, do you think that they are able to sort of kind of skip ahead because they already have a model for where it goes? So it's... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, like we, like here, um, they can just essentially skip straight to 4G. Like a lot of places have. They don't have to run landlines or they don't have these infrastructure. They, cell phones there um, are like their computers. Like a lot of people don't have even tablets or desktop PCs. Like they just, their, their connecting device is that phone in their hand and they can leapfrog us. Like they don't have to, they don't have to walk through the same path that I think the North Americans have gone where, you know, we went from dial up to high speed and, you know, went from desktops to smartphones. They can go straight from nothing <laughs> to, to high speed 4G connections mm-hmm. or in a lot of places it's the, th- the 3G on cellular networks, but even that is a huge improvement. You know, can you imagine going from, um, not even dial up, and then you have this phone that has 3G. You know, 3G is much faster than dial up. It's like our, you know, almost ADSL speeds in some places. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you were the one who told me this story about how people use the, the um, their smartphones to kind of um, download information from the internet and go to like a Starbucks, for example, when they're connected, download everything, and then turn mm-hmm. it off and then go read it later. Right. Because it's, I guess it wasn't as yeah. affordable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, they, it's, it's, it depends on where you are. And if your wireless connection, your cellular connection is too slow to download a whole video or something, mm-hmm. you know, you go to some or, or it's too expensive. Then you can go to a place where like Starbucks where, or a cafe or wherever, right? Some place that offers a free Wi-Fi, you can use that to, to essentially download what you need and then go watch it offline. You know, there's definitely a, we're so used to just picking up our device and it's connected or sitting down at a computer. It's just the internet is just there. It's like magic. It's like part of your computer. Um, a lot, and a lot of places, you know, it's, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. It's, the data is not just readily accessible. Um, mm-hmm. But then when you look at something like how to monetize the internet, can we go into like, what are the different ways of how businesses make money on the internet? Because essentially we value, um, I guess, internet users by their eyeballs. Or we say, if we can't sell them virtual goods, if we're not bombarding them with repetitive information and eventually leading to a funnel where it's like, they eventually get to buying something. So if they're just downloading this information, is the monetization of how the internet is right now based on a, a more, I guess, developed society? You know, mm, well, there's only been a few business models that's ever that actually really works on the internet. I think, well, the one that we know of, like, is advertisement. That's that's been so far the most efficient model for converting someone's attention into dollar, like into currency, right? Uh, and and there's some other ones too. For example, affiliate programs, and and then there's services. But for for the most part, it's advertisement that that is the the main business model on the internet. Um, that is if you have an internet business, a lot of people, a lot of companies have websites where, for example, they might be like a restaurant or something. They just want to share information. Then, then their, the, the, their, their website is not really their business. It's, 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 it supplements their business. It's not their business. Right, it supports it. So in a way it's still advertising yeah. revenue, but just a more of an indirect way. So it's a more of a, a brand yeah. extension where they can just drive users from online to offline and, I think that was more of the early days of monetization, but right now with the world kind of changing to be, um, you know, the, the modern day of work has changed where because of this coronavirus, we're seeing we have to stay at home a lot more and people are starting to work from home and looking at online businesses to make their um, sources of revenue. How does 
well, this, you see this being a trend of, I mean, be more online. Well, we're we're always going to be more, depends on where you are. If you're, if you're uh, in a very, like a, like a society, like the North American where there's high speed, even in North America, it's not complete everywhere. You know, there's, there's huge parts of, of the U.S. and Canada where high speed is not accessible. It's only when you live in some of the major cities that are well connected. Um, but I, I think to go back, the internet was, you know, it wasn't designed for commerce initially. A, a lot of the underlying technologies of it were, were built for connection, just moving data from uh, point A to point B and having computers be able to talk together. It was only during the dot-com boom era where people started building actual real internet businesses. And that came like what, uh, decades, <laughs> a decade after. So, um, and so a lot of technologies have pushed forward uh, from that. Like, how do we monitor, how do we make money? How do we have an internet business? And, and I think, um, you know, you, to, you see things like, oh, how do I send someone money securely? You know, like how do I share my credit card information? Even back, way back in the early web days, it, the, Traffic wasn't encrypted. You know, your your credit card number and your information um, just went over an unencrypted connection. But no one really understood, like, what were the dangers there. Um, but you fast forward uh, to today, um, a lot of technologies have been created simply to extract money out of attention. Mm-hmm. And But but the, I think for me that the thing there is, like, that that's an add-on to what the original web, a lot of those protocols and a lot of the ways that, you know, people specifications, how computers talk together and how they communicate, they're still there, uh, you know, designed decades ago. Um, the stuff that we use today is just bolted on top. And sometimes that, that relationship, that layering there isn't perfect, it was, um, but it works. Mm-hmm. It's almost in a way that money is almost the root of all evil. <laughs> Um, it kind of goes along with that. Do you feel like money has, or capitalism has kind of steered technology into a path that with, if, if the value systems were different, um, technology would be a little bit different, you know? Uh, I, I want to, first, I don't believe money is the root of all evil. Uh, it's, you know, money is just a thing, just like technology is just a thing. It, how it's used by people uh, and is, is a real value judgment there. And, and definitely greed. <laughs> greed has not been good for the internet. I mean, it's actually, to be honest, it's kind of fucked up the experience a little bit. It's not, the, it's not as, um, you know, uh, uh, to zoom back or sort of to go back in time a little bit, when the, the early web was pretty um, neat because... It was like this brand new thing people were discovering. Um, there was, it, it was almost like an artist community where people were going to try things out, personal websites. You know, you had all these different things. And it was just this explosion of creativity. And what happened there was uh, like, what, how many personal websites do people make today? Uh, or how many do you see? It's, it's gotten much more complicated and the, the large websites like Facebook, uh, Google, uh, Twitter, like only a few, it's like a few giants. There's a few giants now where everybody spends their attention and personal websites have essentially been pushed to the wayside. Um, if you, unless you're super technical, almost no one, the, the average person doesn't make a website anymore. And I, I think that is sad. It is. It is more, more so than. Well, it is yeah. super sad. And I think the reason for that is because crowds attract crowds, right? So when we talk, go straight back to the core of money thing, when we have these conglomerates like Google and Facebook, and they have so much money to kind of steer where technology is going on, you know, on their behalf of making more shareholder money, um, you, you go to Google, if you can make your own website, if you can't be found, you know, and they're dry, they're pushing you to the content they want to see where they can make the most money. It really is money driving um, innovation because they yeah, get the eyeballs. Like that's, I think that's a really, 
they definitely get all like the majority of the attention. Um, and you know, if this, if you think about it from uh, people getting attention, that that sort of mindset of attention, it, the the social social media, um, I believe, uh, it would be like how people like how our generation, how today we see smoking. You know, it's it's kind of this thing. It's a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit taboo, but it used to be cool, but now it's not so cool. And I think, uh, and I, well, I kind of hope too, that social media, we're going to recognize that it's kind of like smoking and, and where it started out as kind of fun and, and it was really meant to connect people. It's actually, it's great. However, it's been exploited for tons of things that, unint- that even the original engineers who created some features did not intend them to be be used that way for example the amount of misinformation on the internet and how how powerful social media is at controlling people's behaviors or influencing um, maybe not so much control influence people's behaviors is is i i believe it's a real danger to to uh, a society that can function fu- well it it's, it creates a very uh polarized dysfunctional society mm-hmm. and some people benefit from that yeah well it's some usually, people want that well it's usually the ones that benefit from that understand it's usually the marketers or the advertisers that understand how to um i guess influence that behavior to drive them to do a particular action um i know back in the day about 10 years ago when i started or like i don't know maybe more than 10 years ago you and i talked about how content was king and then we kind of debunked that we were like well content is not really king it traffic is king and when we have these you know companies that kind of control the traffic and you don't even have access to who your reach is because you know that's really yeah um i think what we talked about that was you know content is king but uh, distribution is god um and yeah so that's that's exactly if you you know think about it from that perspective it's it's that there can you know say there's a balance of of content that is for or against an idea if a a powerful you know someone who controls these social media platforms decided that you know i kind of like option b more than option a so I'm just going to slightly skew our technology or algorithms or AI, whatever they use to um, curate the content mm-hmm. towards B, the thing that they want, uh, then you know, B will get more attention and likely it, it sets off um, a, a feedback loop where more people think about B. B gets more mind share. B gets more discussion and it can really stifle A. And it's a way of sort of nudging people towards something because I, I actually believe that most people uh, even as, as a human thing it's easy to focus and comment and collaborate and discuss the thing that you can see but the things that are invisible you don't talk about and what's usually invisible are these algorithms like a becomes more and more or less visible you know because and there's there can be we can have a real discussion about like well <laughs> what is what is the responsibility um, or the expectation uh, of these, you know, large distribution mediums to, to create conversation, create dialogue amongst people? Sure. And what do we do here, right? As someone that needs to still connect and we're kind of caught in between um, the modern world and these organizations controlling our connections digitally, like, um, it's almost like this game theory that you have to kind of be more mindful of that, that there's this other layer, like you said, the things that are not talked about that are controlling our lives. And mm-hmm. again, it's kind of like, you know, do you hear the concept of like the prisoner's dilemma? Yeah. 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 Where if you collaborate, you know, um, we yeah, get to uh, a better more result outcome but if you were to kind of pit yourselves against each other um assuming that the other person doesn't retaliate right you you kind of come up ahead but 
in this case with technology, we kind of have to work with what's kind of in this moment of history right now. This is just the reality that we have to um, live within, even though it could be kind of frustrating. Um, so where do you recommend like people find that balance to say, I see all these issues. I don't want to be a part of it, but in order to live in modern society, I have to, right? So just say if I was a business and, it, and there's these things that said, well, if I'm not online right now, I cannot survive. Do you, do you believe yeah. that that is true? And if a business doesn't have a website, can they survive or a digital revenue stream? Well, I, I think that's that's a very complex question. Yeah, of course. Well, I, I don't. It depends on the business. Like, if not not all businesses need a, a digital revenue stream, and not all businesses need a website. Uh, however, uh, a business is that that's not online. Uh, you know, if it works well for them, it's fine. But it's very very rare now. It's you know, it's kind of like the uh, you, the the line that you know you need to be this tall to ride is that's the minimum. You just have to have some sort of web presence. It might not be hosting your own website, but it can be even a Facebook page uh, and, or even, you know, anything. Um, Yelp, but you, it can't be list. completely invisible. Sure, yeah, but you can't be completely invisible because it, that, if that affects your business, then, you know, it makes, it makes practical sense to be on there. However, the, the really complex thing is where do you find that, balance and that's the part that i believe is really invisible where it's it's really hard to see what is beneficial and what is not beneficial particularly when things have gotten so complex and what i mean what i mean by complex is um it's even hard for people who are in technology to really understand what is going on and now it's got and and a understand what's going on and have uh, a, a position or values that they advocate for. And, you know, I think most people f really enjoy social media. It feels good to use. Uh, you know, it satisfies a need. Um, and like I said, it's, smoking was similar. You know, it feels cool. You know, kind of fit in. Smoking feels good, you know, because... Uh, Maybe not so much afterwards, but you know, the but social media is very yeah, similar, it, 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 and but it's not beneficial. Well, it meets, I don't think it's beneficial, right, but it meets a need, right? And um, some people, like you said, it's very subjective to how we use social media. Where you might feel like you're connected, or you feel, I think it's really about connection these days, and we're, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's what yeah, you know, social. like uh, two. I think maybe almost. Uh, almost a year, two, almost two years now, I, I quit most social media and, and it was hard for like the first six months or so. You, you almost like that, that Twitch to just go, go to uh, Facebook or Facebook, like whatever, uh, Twitter. But, but after a while you just realize you, know, you, you wean yourself off of it and you, and Yes, I think what you're saying is you, you do feel a little bit less connected to people. Um, that's true, but it also kind of doesn't matter because that's not the only way to stay connected to people. And, and, and I, I think, I think that's many, the, the trick there, right? Sure. And I think in many ways, it's maybe not the quality type of connection we were hoping that it, it kind of was to replace. So, you know, for me, I've been, I don't know, since very early days, I've had Instagram and, and all the, the different platforms being that I worked in marketing as well. But I can notice even my personal relationship changing over time with these platforms. And I think right now, um, knowing how the algorithms kind of work and people being a little bit more aware of how, you know, what these push notifications and having these little bings and what it does to your brain to kind of highlight these yeah. dopamine responses yeah. is a very yeah. addictive type of, um, yeah feeling right it's really hmm. it's like oh I, i'm important right now or someone needs me or uh i someone cares about me or something and yeah yeah it's yeah. It's, it's 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 basically like it's a, a dopamine machine yeah <laughs> you yeah you, you you post something and 
you know, if you have your thing set up, it's like, oh, I got this many likes. And every time you get a like, it feels good. However, you know, when someone unfriends you, it feels awful. But the irony is, is it's, it doesn't actually mean anything usually in real life, right? Like, who cares if, like, eight people unfollowed you? Like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I feel... Well, or, it goes, or, it goes yeah. back to a very primitive thing about being human beings, right? It's sort of like, oh, well, this person followed me. Maybe I'm not good enough to be a part of their tribe. They're ousting me. And that is psychologically traumatizing in ways. It's like, well, why? Do they not like what I posted? Or am I offensive to them? Where very rarely is it yeah. about us. It's more of the yeah. other person on the other side. And um, maybe it's very good. You know, it's... Like the, these sorts of things, um, even the things that you mentioned, there's um, the you know there's a skill set there of self reflection. If without that, like those tools, like a tool set, or you know, in other ways, things like the emotional maturity or the EQ or however you want to label it, with without that, um, it just feels bad. You know, you can't analyze it; it just feels bad. But if you do this other thing, it just feels good. So why not just do the thing that feels good, which is keep posting more and more content to acquire likes or followers or whatever. Um, it, and it just feels good. And that's, I, I think that's for the most part, one of the things what makes social media like big is that it just feels good. For sure. Um, with, with, with the spread of knowledge and wisdom to kind of do this self-reflection, do you feel like because everybody's sort of on this journey and path and their relationship with technology keeps maturing. Eventually everybody will start to see, Oh, well I'm curating so much just to be popular or liked that I'm starting to lose my own sense of, uh, you know, uniqueness and authenticity. And I'm just reposting memes. And because I know that my audience likes this more and they don't really like it when I talk about deeper topics that are concerning, like, you know, wearing masks and over COVID, for example, or talking about Trump um, gets a lot more likes, but stating my own personal um, preference for everybody wearing masks is not popular. You know, do you, do you think that, um, like, do you think that humanity is learning on a global conscious uh, technology? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I really don't. I don't see that those kind of things uh, really concern me because you know in order to be a futurist and design products for the future we have to have sort of some kind of faith that humanity is kind of on this growth trajectory towards more consciousness and opening up be more open-minded to bigger issues because if we don't kind of believe that humans are growing in a positive way how they're always forever be manipulated by marketers and people kind of just putting them into these silos just to monetize them eventually. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, from your perspective, being a technologist this long, you, you believe that forever um, humanity can, I guess, as a collective kind of falls into that percentage of it will always be the top 10% that, are always awake and at the kind of the more cutting edge awareness and then the rest the bottom 90 percent mind you these numbers and <laughs> not based on any facts i'm just throwing about yeah that. yeah i know you're making them up yeah I, well let's i think let's look at it from the other way right um say say everyone understood things like skinner boxes and you know uh nudges and the psychological aspects and these addictive uh, mechanics of, of these things. What, what does the world look like there? I, I think, um, like, what would technology look like then? And, and from that perspective, I don't actually believe it looks any different because the people who design these things understand that. And it's not the motivation to to build things to be less addictive because there, there's a different motivation there uh, and there's different goals there. So even if consumers or the people who use technology 
realize these sort of things that, Hey, these things are addictive, you know, it, just use the, use, let's go back to cigarettes. There's, it's literally, a, they have boxes. They're completely no advertising. It's just a giant warning label and people still buy yeah, them. I, I really agree with this point too, because it really is that trade-off of like convenience versus, you know, privacy or whatever. We're just like, well, um, even me, I fall into that as well as knowing all these things. I still, uh, I guess, fall into these pitfalls of, of my cognitive decision-making where even though I know concepts like, you know, anchoring of a pricing, if I don't know something, I will generally still, my mind still goes for the best deal because someone told me it was the best deal for example, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And when, when I go online to buy something, it's like, this thing's on sale, 82% off. Um, I'm like, okay, <laughs> buy it now. And, and then I'm like, you know, you go online later, like, well, they just raised the price by like 82%. It's like exactly the same price. You just, yeah. Yeah, and it's, do we ever really learn though? Yeah. Like how many times do we have to go through that to actually learn? And if marketers know that they don't, whether they want to take responsibility or not, um, there is other factors that they have to consider as a business to say, well, I could take responsibility or I can make as much money as possible. Which one do I kind of choose there? Right. And um, I don't know. I think maybe. I think that really depends on, on the, the values of the company or the market, like the people who are the company making the decisions, you know, it's, and if uh, absolutely if if they're like okay you know what 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 matters most is making as much money as possible who cares if, if everything is clad in completely unrecyclable packaging and you know whatever it's that's fine um well fine being whatever uh you value but that's what they want to do if you don't like it don't buy their stuff and and for for, for the most of us, I, I think people can make their own decisions. Well, here. I think that's also, However, well, I, I want to make a comment on what you just said there about not yeah. buying their stuff and putting that onto the consumer to have to be re like responsible for things like too much plastic in the world, for example, right? Because marketers just say when you're sorting stuff is a very good example where they label things from like one to seven, I believe, of the different types of plastics from anywhere from like your child's car seat to single use plastics. But really when you look at the recycling depot, only maybe one and two actually get recycled where the rest of it looks like it's being kind of put recyclable, but it actually is not. It actually just ends up in these landfills. But in the mind of the consumer, yeah. they're very much like thinking, well, yo, it's okay to, to buy more plastic products because it's gonna go get recycled anyways. So it's this priming that they have to think um, that's, again, um, manipulated, really, by, by marketers. So, yeah, no, I, I, um, I'm actually pro-landfill, <laughs> which might trigger some people. But here's what I mean by that is uh, recycling is basically, um, depending on where you are, a, a giant scam. And, and it's a giant scam to make help people believe that they can buy these things and there is some sort of, you know, you put it in the recycling bin, you sort it, and instead of just throwing it directly into the garbage, you're, it's net be beneficial. It's a little bit better than just straight to the landfill. How, however, um, I, I think there's been tons of reports that came out and so like, you know, the, the other side of it, like, you know, once you throw it out or once you put it in the recycling bin and the truck has come and taken it away, what is on the other side of that? And a lot of plastic from North America goes, gets shipped across the ocean to be sorted in like a third world country. And the things that they can't recycle, what do they do with it? They dump it in the ocean. And there's a giant garbage patch in the middle of the Pacific. That's, I think it's last time I've like heard about it. It's like the size of Texas. Oh yeah. And, yeah. Oh. and the, and the, and the water is continually breaking it down and, we have these microplastics in our, in our water supply now. However, now going back to landfills, say we just dug a, a huge hole somewhere in the desert or somewhere and just buried the stuff for a million years or like a hundred thousand years, just, you know, just buried it. 
um, hopefully we pick a site that doesn't contaminate uh, or groundwater or destroy the ecology there, but it's just a giant hole in the ground. Um, what's that going to be in a million years? Will it still be plastic or will it turn back into fossil fuels? <laughs> you know, it's better than it being the ocean. I, and, but if we look at things like, and I, I only given this a little bit of thought, like if we think about things at this, the time scales of tens of thousands of years, way beyond human lifetime, like a single human lifetime time scale to, to, to the planet, it, it doesn't like, where did all this oil and stuff came from? Like, or sorry, come from, right? It came from, it, would, would this stuff just turn back into fossil fuels or break down back into, you know, well, carbon has, or th these base well, elements? Why don't you just bury it? Well, yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> the problem is we don't know what these half-lives of breaking things down are because when we combine these, again, it's technology of human innovating these combinations of creating you know, the difference between a soft plastic versus a hard plastic, right? So single-use plastics like um, a saran wrap is actually a very different formula than something like that, your salad container, for example, right? So I think a lot of people don't understand that when you separate these two things, they don't actually go into the same incinerator because they have different molecular compounds that gets broken down. So when, when we simplify yeah. some of these solutions um, and, and – when we simplify some, you know, like well, here, here, hold on. Here's a, here, here's a, okay. no, but when we, I'm just saying, when we simplify some of these solutions, we only look at a piece of this whole entire system, how it connect connects together. Because even when we look at something like pulling carbon from the air to say, well, we're going to lower climate change. Um, we're only looking at the carbon footprint of something, how it's affected, but we don't look at the total carbon footprint. So really it's more like a carbon toe print that people are using as a metric to say, oh, when I eat beef, it's like, you know, 0 0.3 tons. But what about the transportation? What about the, like the packaging that had to be, had to be like used to kind of serve it to you in? And even if you were to recycle it, um, recycling plastic costs energy, right? So we have to kind of look at um, these, doing these actions as the total net effect to the planet as opposed to saying doing this is a positive thing because sometimes when you when you take an action it might actually be net neutral uh, as an impact yeah i yeah i think it's important to think of what when people talk about you know being concerned about climate change and you know polluting the planet um, or we're destroying the ecosystem. You know, all of those things are true. <laughs> and, but, but, and this is like, I'm not, uh, to be qualified, I'm not advocating for like, just don't give a shit and just do, do whatever feels good, right? It's, um, but I guess the, the my, my thing is like, but so what? I actually, I, I actually don't believe in, in that same, like, you know, we need to do this for the, for the good of the planet. And that's actually, I, I actually don't believe in that statement because uh, recycling and these sort of things uh, at, in terms of planetary uh, timescales, the surface of the planet don't care. Uh, there's been other species on this planet. They've gone extinct, humans arise, maybe humans go extinct, but the, it's not for the planet, it's for humanity. So uh, I think that's, that is... The, the more of the right focus there in terms of should we change our habits and our mindsets about how we take care of the planet to take care of ourselves. Cause we're not really, I, I don't, I don't think most people care as like, well, they think they care about the planet, but I actually believe they care. They're really thinking about humanity and how much do we care about humans and, and our interactions and our place as a part in the full ecosystem and how everything connects in the world. Because even if we burnt every liter of oil that we could pump out of the ground, you know, it's climate change, the world has heat, heats up, everything, half the world's a desert. Uh, you fast forward a couple million years, things might actually come back and there might be another species here mm -hmm. that tries yeah. again. I really, um, I really like that. Um that you shared that and you know now that I've been sort of being a social entrepreneur in this green space a little bit um and focusing on the environment it, it is also the what I feel like is what we're doing here is about 
this connection back to nature because humans are nature, right? So the issue is not so much the planet, but talking to that as if we, uh, what the human impact has had on the rest of nature. And that is the problem, right? So right now we're at, I think we've killed 63% of biodiversity and it, we're doing it at a very alarming rate. And it's really within this post-industrial um, advancements and stuff. So really it's like, if we go on the same trajectory path of how fast we're kind of destroying everything and we're not being mindful and we're at this top of this animal kingdom, um, we're, we're eventually we will destroy ourselves because we imbalance the environment so much that it's, it's not working. We're not working together with it. And that, that leaves us very vulnerable to things of, you know, our, our quality of life, for example, our air quality, when we have more forest fires, we're not able to go out there and enjoy blue skies. Or, you know, when we drink water, we have all these microplastics that we now have to filter out. Um, <laughs> there's just so much mm -hmm. that is so interconnected. Um, and I'm, you know, yeah, yeah, those things suck, right? Like, I mean, you just rewind um, 50 years, and and none of these like problems were nearly at this scale. Life was pretty good. Well, that's the <laughs> because, but because we, but but technology and change um, and new materials and plastics and these sort of things uh, have made the quality of life better. But yet, it's also made you know at a, at a local level for most people, it made the quality of life fairly comfortable. You know, we're more connected. We we don't have to wash our own clothes. You know, we don't don't we have to wash our own dishes. They're just so you don't even have to make your own food anymore. You just you don't even have to leave your house. Um, but on a larger scale, it's arguably is it worse? It's very different though. I mean, there's less animals, <laughs> different types of animals. There's less insects. There's less of all these other things. But the trade off has been our technology and our quality of life has gotten better but maybe maybe we're in uh, a bit of a transition period here where where the next phase is we learn how to live in balance with with nature but i you know honestly from my perspective i highly doubt it if if anything um we're going to keep going down this path until it's too late uh, that's a very dystopian way of looking at it but but yeah, it's it's easy to say why you would make why you would feel like that, right? Um, but but you know why? Like uh, here, I'll I'll tell you more about like, uh, what informs my thinking here is that um, the the things that you know we talked a little bit about recycling and stuff, and we, and recycling is a solution to to plastic and landfills, but it's it's on the wrong end of that. The the right place if you if people really cared about there being too much plastic in the environment, you, you have to not find a solution to too much plastic. The solution to too much plastic is stop using so much plastic. But, but if you keep going backwards, it's like, okay, what is the reason why we use so much plastic? Well, it gives us all these great things. We can package food, stays fresher, or, you know, protects the products, et cetera. Okay. Just keep going. These, these are problems that are better solved by getting rid of the problems rather than trying to find solutions to yeah, them. Yeah, I, like, I like that mindset, I like that you, mindset there too because just to add to that, it's, it's, it's a, we're using all this plastic because it's available. So what we could do on a foundational level and be responsible is find alternative solutions for that, right? So it's the same thing as back in the day when we were killing all these whales and using their blubber as, you know, um, to feel like lamps and light or whatever. And then there was an invention of like, you know, ACDC current, whatever, harnessing. I don't know how, what the transition is from that energy to what we're using electricity today. But um, there is, there is big moments of revolutions that change industries. And so if we were able to kind of visualize what that future sort of looks like, and it's all more renewable, more sustainable, it's just a matter of, um, not just corporations, but the people within it to be more consciously aware of what they put out into the world because what they put out, consumers will buy because that is the option that's available there. Just like 
as if it's Facebook or as if it's Google. Um, But how do we even go about educating some of these people that are able to capitalize on systems, right? And, and these systems are kind of rigged in a way where we have the FDA and we have um, the World Health Organization doing these, um, like, you know, providing solutions without looking well, holistically yeah. at how the systems are also interconnected. Yeah. There's, right, there's, um, there's a simple but not easy solution where, like, let's just go back to plastics since we've been on it. It's like, um, it, plastics in the environment or, or whatever, um, it, it's been pushed to, to a consumer problem. Consumers need to recycle. If we just flip that around and made it um, the manufacturer's problem, then that feedback loop changes. Mm-hmm. If, right, it's, so like, uh, I think a good example of this is like say uh, a factory that, that uses water. Like a lot of factories, lots of water is used for manufacturing and they pollute the water, but it becomes a downstream problem. But if, uh, but if the pollution is upstream of the factory, it, it becomes a factory's problem, right? When you can push all your problems downstream, like plastic is a downstream problem for the consumer. Um, like even for us, like when we use plastics, it's what do we do? We stick it in a recycling bin and we push it in further downstream. Eventually it winds up literally downstream. Um, and, and to solve these things, the feedback loop should go up. Go up so the what other about way. thinking holistically as a system, as a loop? Right. It's just but an I, idea. What about everybody Sorry? just working together? It's not just one person's responsibility. It's it's on behalf of the corporations. It's also on the consumer, and it's also on the policymakers and and everybody being aware of. Yeah. I guess it really starts with education and mindfulness. And maybe it starts with our education system at, at a very, very early age to say, okay, well, when we take some of these actions, we have to consider the consequences of our actions. And that seems to be sort of be missing that piece of common sense. Yeah, that's, that's part education. But I, that to me, that sounds more cultural than education, that there's plenty of cultures out there where living in harmony with the environment and taking what you need and preserving the environment this longer term thinking is, is a foundation of the culture. Uh, you know, it, that's not pervasive in our culture. And why, why it's, is it not? Even, well, then we ask, why is it not pervasive in our culture? And is it because we are a very capitalistic mind minded society? You know, we have these fabric of, touches of socialism baked in there but really when we look at north america is it not a plurocracy right where money kind of controls majority of the people that are running the state it's really is it do we really have a democracy i mean i don't want to get into politics and stuff like that but really doesn't money drive most of our industries well um let's well, well what is culture like that this is a very complex question but when i think about it, it's like culture is essentially made up of all the mindsets and what people believe and how they think the world should work uh, and go on together into a society you know and culture moves very slow like things change um like for example smoking used to be cool like going back to my example like smoking used to be cool but it's not a, so much in our culture anymore social media is big part of our culture but think culture changes they just changes very slowly and uh and we can even see it in our lifetimes um the rise of electric cars the rise of solar energy renewable energy these sort of things are shifts in our culture our um our attitudes towards nuclear energy you know advances in technology making fusion power uh not 35 years away you know, perpetually, but maybe sometime in the next 10 years, like these things are changing. And as these things change, our culture will change, but also as the environment changes, uh, it'll change our culture. Uh, I'll give you an example, like um, climate change and people recognizing has already changed our culture. If, 
if it wasn't for like all the forest fires that we see in the West Coast, flooding, the, just like the number of hurricanes and like these things are slowly changing our culture. It just changes really slow. It's going to take decades, if not um, a, like a lifetime or two. Maybe it might take 50 years um, to, for our culture to change. And uh, I, I have hope that uh, in 50, you know, even 30 to 30, 50 years, the, the young people, they're going to look back and they're going to look back and go, wow, what the hell, <laughs> old people? Um, how could you guys burn so much gas or how could you think that that was actually a good thing? Um, but it's a slow change in culture. Like we look back, like, I mean, we're, um, we look back at uh, the, the baby boomer generation and I'm sure we're surprised by a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So how do you um, think that, that with technology advancing faster and faster, um, how is that affecting culture? And with us being so connected globally now, um, so do you believe that having these black walls, like censorship of what information goes in, like, for example, China, um, doesn't allow, you know, certain websites and social media things so that they can kind of curate a little bit more of the information that goes to their society. Are you more pro that then, hearing what you just said there? Or what was your stance on that? Oh, sorry, am I more pro censorship or more control over content? Is that yeah. like... Like I'm saying, like with advancing of technology, how fast it's going, how is it affecting a culture and how do you yeah. preserve a culture by when you're so, when we're so, when we have an open mind and we're, we're so influenced by the stuff that we read or see, culture is really the foundation yeah. of that society. Now that we're more becoming this global one world based on technology. Yeah. Like where, how do we preserve a culture and not? Yeah, I, I think so. So there's, um, so Information, uh, sorry, technology, particularly smartphones and how connected things are now, has increased our access to information. And we're swimming in it today. You know, we can't look around the corner and not get some new piece of information from somewhere else in the world. So we have this abundance of information, but we have this uh, scarcity of attention. But also, um, it's... I think the change the culture here is that we're, I, I hope that we're, we're going to be more aware of what an abundance of information, the benefits and the harm that it can do to us. And we're going to be more aware of that. Just, just like um, where we found this great source of like high density energy from fossil fuels, we're going to learn the, the downsides of that um, over time. Or uh, as as a you know uh, as the ideas get more widespread about misinformation, how we can um, be more critical, like think more critically about the information that we get. Hopefully, think and and choose what information we allow um, ourselves or in our, in our children to take in. Um, we're that's going to change it, and we're going to have that discernment. And more people have that discernment. So that's how I think um, information and technology will, will change our cultures that, you know, we're just going to be more, more careful about what we consume. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that sounds very and what we not use. dystopian. That sounds very ideal to me if people could actually have that discernment and be able to, to, to make better decisions. Like you said, have a, a emotional intelligence and, whatever to self-reflection. But I mean, when it comes to technology yeah. and all these things influencing us, do we even have something as free will? Just in your opinion, I'm just curious. What do you think about the concept of free will in the modern day of tech? Um, I, I, I believe people have um, free will. Like, but it, I think it to define free will is like, you know, I, I really believe people always have a choice. They might not be making conscious choices all the time. They might be subconscious choices, but people are always making decisions. In fact, people are probably making more decisions uh, today than they were yesterday. And they're always making decisions. Do I, and some of the unconscious ones, do I pick up my cell phone or, or not to go out, use social media? Um, you know, what, what are habits here? But, but, um, but it's, I think that's, that's part of it too, is, 
is that we have to make so many more choices. We can make so many more choices. There's so much choice now that we're, we have almost, we have so much free will to choose yeah, but, things. But, but that's, and that's the even, philosophical thing I'm trying to ask right now is if we're influenced by all this outside um, sources of information, if, or, if our core narrative or belief is wrong, the subconscious decisions that we kind of make kind of go on to this bias right it's it's confirming the same thing you already know because it's easy it's comfortable we already know it. it doesn't take a lot of cognitive resources so we just kind of fall into that 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 pathway right so is that truly free yeah will? well i think what you said there um well what i think what you just said there that's the word that struck off for me is like it's wrong but the word wrong is a value judgment of of something i mean i if someone chooses a to vote for someone that you don't agree with is that wrong maybe in your perspective that is the wrong choice but from their perspective it's the right choice and your your choice is the wrong choice right however um what what i think there is that we just have so much choice in front of us and it's hard it gets harder it's more complex to figure out what is the right choice for no, ourselves. But I'm saying, I mean, and... if you figure out and have discernment, you have to be conscious of the choice that you're making. But I'm just saying the subconscious things that we do becomes very like, um, <laughs> it, it's not in our thought, it's not in our conscious mind, we just do them based on a repetition or a routine. And mm -hmm. it doesn't really readily come to yeah. mind where we're like, Oh, um, this might be wrong. We never second guess it anymore. And it's, it's because we've been trained like that to be like, oh, I do this because I get this result. And I'm just saying that lack of free will for me is sort of like, is it is is our free will? Has it become automatic as well? <laughs> We're not really making choices that are. Actually um, I, I think it's like, I mean, I I'm not a psychologist or like, <laughs> uh, but I, I I feel like information is is just not you know it's. It's not evil and it's not good. It's just this access to, uh, to information is there now. And we can learn almost anything on the internet. You just have to go online and search and you can probably find more information that you can read in days on any topic that you want to do or learn more about. So that, I mean, to, for me, my I think that is a net win, uh, a, a net benefit for society as a whole uh however you can also get a whole bunch of misinformation that might lead you towards somebody someone else's goals they might, you might not even know it right and that that is the discernment those are the skills that we need there to like to build choose like i want this or or i don't want that and that comes down to personal maturity and being able to make mm -hmm. have good judgment a good a good judgment there means um, I I choose things that are beneficial to me, or I choose things that are beneficial to the things that matter to me, and it, that might be you know a median term thing. It might be my children or <laughs> my dog or my neighborhood or my community. But um, I have a set of values that I operate on, and I make choices based mm -hmm. on those values. I think that's a very good way to sort of end today's episode as well as. To say, you know, technology, there's so much out there and so much information that it really is subjective to an individual. And it's a very complex topic. Whatever way or path we choose to talk about it, um, there's just so much, just, just so many things that can, can kind of stem from it um, that hasn't maybe been worked out because it's, it's new to all of us, right? No one, none of us really have any of the answers and maybe the thing is just to stay open to hear your, your opinion and my opinion and not to assume that this is right or this is wrong, but it's, it's, is what it is. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I, I, I would, uh, I would totally agree with that. It's, it's that, uh, you know, what are your, what are your values and what choices can you make that to benefit yourself more and how do you use this stuff mm -hmm. but then when you focus on internally just yourself and your your priorities it's very hard to 
to scale that to kind of work together as a, a, a global family, right, to solve issues such as climate change, for example. I think maybe this is where the resistance kind of comes from and people can't really um, figure out, well, how do I help? I can do my own little part. Maybe it adds to that. So who gives that guidance, right? And I don't, I mean, I'm just asking that because I don't have the answers yet, but we can only kind of go towards an idea of how a future that we kind of want to see. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I guess, yeah. Uh, yeah, one final question just before we jump off here. Um, what is the future you want to see for technology? Like, how do you see um, a utopia of technology in 50 years, let's say? I, 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 hmm. I, I think so. A utopia of t- what, what a utopia looks like to me is that, uh, that information, not, not so much technology, technology just enables us to have access to all the information we need. And we're able to have discernment about what information we choose to adopt into our mindset. And our mindsets um, help us design and build a life that benefits us, whatever our values are. But now we have that choice and we're able to have the, uh, the mindset and mental models and the tools there to make good decisions that mm-hmm. benefit us or our community, whatever our values are, that we can live into our values and technology helps enable that mm-hmm. more. So working together um, and having... If that's what your value, I mean. <laughs> no. Okay, yeah. great. Thank you, Ben, um, for your time. Thank and you. Yeah. Yes, I hope uh, our listeners got something out of that and 